Let us turn in the Bible to Esther chapter 5. Esther 5. We'll read the whole chapter and once again the entire chapter will be our text tonight. Now it came to pass on the third day that Esther put on her royal apparel and stood in the inner court of the king's house over against the king's house. And the king sat upon his royal throne in the royal house over against the gate of the house. And it was so when the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court that she obtained favor in his sight And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. So Esther drew near and touched the top of the scepter. Then said the king unto her, What wilt thou, Queen Esther, and what is thy request? It shall be given, or it shall be even given thee to the half of the kingdom. And Esther answered, If it seem good unto the king, Let the king and Haman come this day unto the banquet that I have prepared for him. Then the king said, Cause Haman to make haste, that he may do as Esther hath said. So the king and Haman came to the banquet that Esther had prepared. And the king said unto Esther at the banquet of wine, What is thy petition? And it shall be granted thee. And what is thy request? Even to the half of the kingdom it shall be performed. Then answered Esther and said, My petition and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my petition and to perform my request, let the king and Haman come to the banquet that I shall prepare for them, and I will do tomorrow as the king hath said. Then went Haman forth that day joyful and with a glad heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he stood not up nor moved for him, he was full of indignation against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman refrained himself, and when he came home, he sent and called for his friends and Zeresh his wife. And Haman told them of the glory of his riches and the multitude of his children, and all the things wherein the king had promoted him, and how he had advanced him above the princes and servants of the king. Haman said, moreover, Yea, Esther the queen did let no man come in with the king unto the banquet that she had prepared, but myself. And tomorrow I am invited unto her also with the king. Yet all this availeth me nothing, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then said Zeresh his wife and all his friends unto him, Let a gallows be made of fifty cubits high, and tomorrow speak thou unto the king that Mordecai may be hanged thereon. Then go, go thou in in merrily with the king unto the banquet." And the thing pleased Haman. 
and he caused the gallows to be made. Thus far we read the Holy Scriptures. Come to another change of scene in the book of Esther. When last we were immersed in the history, Shushan was the scene of fasting and weeping, and outside the king's gate in the the plaza there, a very intense conversation took place through an intermediary between Esther and Mordecai about what to do concerning the impending destruction of the Jewish people. Mordecai had urged Esther to take action, but Esther was hesitant, for by law, she could not go to the king as Mordecai urged her to do. She could not go unbidden, or else she would risk death. And she had not been called by a Ahasuerus for 30 days. But Mordecai, as we saw, prevailed upon Esther. Esther heard his reasons, and they persuaded her As Mordecai told her that deliverance would come from no other place, and who knows, perhaps you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And regardless of what Mordecai meant by those words, we saw the depth of truth in those words, that indeed the unseen king, Jehovah God, had raised Esther up to this position in Persia and made her queen for precisely this time that through her, God might bring deliverance to his people. And what an important application we saw of that truth, that it applies to all of God's people in whatever time God sovereignly places them, as he is the Lord of our life and the Lord of our times, and he raises us up for such a time in which he calls us to live and gives us the grace for that So the text last time ended with Esther and the Jews fasting for three days. Now verse 1. Now it came to pass on the third day. Those three days have passed. The day has come when Esther pledged she would go to the king. Her own fasting had not drawn the attention of Ahasuerus. He had not called her. Just as Esther had been oblivious to what was going on outside of the walls of the house of the women, so too Ahasuerus is oblivious to what's even going on in his own palace. And so Esther, with determination, will go. Though her life hangs upon the fragile thread of a fickle king's temperament and the lives of the Jewish people with her, she will go. How close it seems, how close to the serpent's victory. So close. Haman's edict is not stopped. The Jews will be destroyed. The line of Christ put to an end. And God's counsel thwarted. So close it seems. And yet, it 
It's all in God's hands. As we come to this critical chapter, we will see again how the unseen king is here and at work and guiding all things to preserve his people. And even when in his wisdom and according to his sovereignty, he lets the serpent get close, if we may say that, to victory. It is only to magnify his own glory and power as the king who rules and saves, preserves his people. And so we now return to the palace of King Ahasuerus. And we go through that palace which had been the scene of much merrymaking. Which is now a sinister and threatening place. And we accompany Esther down its long corridors towards the king's private chambers. What will happen? Let's consider this text under the theme, Esther begins her appeal. We're first going to look at Esther's bold approach. Her bold approach to King Ahasuerus. Secondly, Esther's unexpected request. And finally, Haman puffed up once more. Esther's bold approach to King Ahasuerus is described in detail in the opening verses of the chapter. And this is designed to build up suspense as we get close to this dangerous meeting between temperamental King Ahasuerus and Esther, his unbidden queen. Will it be life or will it be death according to Persian law? Verse 1 tells us, Esther put on her royal apparel before going to meet the king. And that refers to all of the trappings of her queenship. Of course, knowing Ahasuerus... More likely, she will be received if she looks good to him. But there's also a reminder here that she is not any ordinary intruder, but the queen. And so Esther goes out alone through the halls of the palace complex toward the king's private chambers, which the text calls the inner court. And verse 1 tells us that Esther comes and ends up standing in the inner court of the king's house. And then verse 1 describes the arrangement of this section of the palace. And it's a bit difficult to understand in our translation. So the way to, to picture it is this. Esther enters into a wide open room, kind of like the narthex of a church. She enters into this wide open room, which was a kind of waiting room for the king's private audience chamber. And the large ornate doors to the king's audience chamber are in front of her on the other side of this room. And in that audience chamber is the king's throne on a raised dais facing those doors. And so Esther walks through this outer chamber, and you can hear her footsteps echoing in this large room until she comes to stand in front of those big doors looking into the king's private audience chamber. And there's Ahasuerus sitting on his raised throne. The whole structure of the building around him meant to impress upon anyone approaching him that this is a man of power. Likely along the walls of his private audience chamber, in the shadows there stood his elite private guard, silent but with hawk's eyes, watching, waiting, 
the merest signal from the king to leap into action. It's Esther and Ahasuerus. Their eyes meet undoubtedly. This is it. What will it be? Life or death? The golden scepter moves with a slow, deliberate motion. The king extends that golden scepter that he holds in his right hand, the ceremonial gesture indicating pardon for this intrusion, the ceremonial gesture indicating that he wills to spare this intruder's life when a mere flick of his other hand could have had her executed in a moment. Verse 2 says, As Ahasuer sees Esther standing there in the court, she obtained favor in his sight. Literally obtained grace. Instead of anger rising in his heart because she defied his law that nobody come to me unbidden. From a human perspective, inexplicably, or contrary to his nature as we've gotten to know it, her appearance pleases him. What relief must have washed over Esther as she watches the top of that scepter extend to her. And so the text describes, silently she comes in to the audience chamber and approaches the throne of Ahasuerus and touches the top of the scepter, a ceremonial gesture acknowledging the king's mercy and also expressing submission and humility To his royal person. First words to break the silence are in verse 3. And they are Ahasuerus' words. What wilt thou, Queen Esther? You notice something interesting. How he uses her royal title there. He recognizes her. As his queen. There's. A certain respect there. Which may surprise us. What wilt thou, Queen Esther? Literally, what is it to you, Queen Esther? What is on your mind such that it brings you to come in this way to make such a request to me? Ahasuerus recognizes that Esther didn't just come to him for no good reason. He knew his law. He knew she knew his law. And the risk that was just taken. What is Thy request, it shall even be given thee to the half of the kingdom, Ahasuerus says. And he's not to be taken literally there as if he was actually willing to divide Persia in half and give Esther rule over half of it. That was a courtly exaggeration, a common expression of a royal person intended to convey goodwill and generosity. You think of Herod, for example, when he was pleased by the dance of Herodias' daughter. He used that same language foolishly. It's an expression of goodwill and generosity. And that fits Ahasuerus' character, doesn't it? He rules and makes decisions on a whim. He has no idea what Esther is going to ask him. But then again, when Haman came to him, he didn't really know what Haman was asking either. He was pleased by Haman. He's pleased now by Esther. Ahasuerus does whatever pleases him. 
Well, now before we go on in the history, let's perceive the hand of the unseen king at work in this dangerous meeting of Ahasuerus and Esther, which turns out so good, we might say. Remember, in the book of Esther, where God is most conspicuously absent, it is there that his presence is being emphasized the most. The coincidences, the unforeseen turns, the unexpected outcomes of events, that's where God's name is written in invisible ink, you might say. God's fingerprints are all over this. That's what explains Ahasuerus not being filled with wrath that Esther dared to defy his well-known law. That's what we would have expected. We saw how upset he got when Vashti defied his command. And yet this difference, what explains it? God explains it. The hand of the unseen king tipped Ahasuerus' scepter forward. Though Ahasuerus doesn't acknowledge it, though no one in the Persian palace acknowledges it, Ahasuerus isn't the one who holds the scepter. God holds the scepter. The unseen king holds the scepter and every earthly scepter. He holds too. God is here. God turned the heart of Ahasuerus against its grain so that in this instance he was pleased with Esther even though her act of coming to him was a bold act and could be easily interpreted as an act of defiance. God did this. And here we see the mystery and the beauty of God's sovereignty, how he works and accomplishes his purposes through men, using men, even as men do their will. Ahasuerus was not a puppet on God's strings. Ahasuerus did what was in his heart, and yet God is behind it, and God uses it, and God accomplishes His will. That's the sovereignty of God. It's complete, it's absolute, and yet it doesn't make puppets out of men. And men remain responsible and guilty for their sins, even as God, the unseen King, is able to bring such great good out of the actions of men which He sovereignly governs. Amazing. Ought we to worship? Yes, we ought. Be comforted in this knowledge of who holds the scepter, our God and King. But now, one more very important application as we look at Esther's bold approach to Ahasuerus and Ahasuerus' reception of her. We're surprised that Ahasuerus received her. And that points out to us a crucial difference between this earthly king and our heavenly king. And that brings a great truth before our eyes. We may boldly approach our God and King. But not with fear and uncertainty, but in the full assurance of faith that He will receive us in favor and that we shall find mercy of Him in time of need. God, our King, who holds the scepter, is totally different than Ahasuerus in his character, and in his way of dealing with us. Our king doesn't demand or command that we stay away from him, 
That we not bother Him. That we don't intrude upon His sanctuary. But completely the the opposite. Our King says, come. Come to me. Come to me at any time. Seek me in your time of need. Over and over again, repeatedly, I never grow weary of you. God gives us free access into his inner court such that there are no laws, there are no bars, there are no guards that would keep us out. He says, come, come to me, my people. And when we draw near to God, we don't have to flatter him. We don't have to figure out how to say it just right so that we don't ignite his temper. God knows our needs. He has compassion. He knows what we will ask before we ask it. And he is mercifully inclined to us. He is not a fickle king like Ahasuerus. And when we approach God, there need not be the tension and the suspense that we see here in Esther's approach to Ahasuerus. Will he rebuff me? Will he reject me? Will he be cold-hearted and unsympathetic toward me? No, no. Rather, the scriptures say in Philippians 4 verse 6, Be careful, that is, be fearful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. His ears are open to his people. And he grants those requests according to his will and according to his wisdom Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and the door shall be opened unto you. That's what our king says. Oh, Ahasuerus wanted to look generous here because Esther had found grace in his sight. He says to her, it shall be even given thee to the half of the kingdom. But our God and king says, Luke 12 Verse 32, fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. God's generosity far outstrips Ahasuerus or any human generosity. It's the generosity of boundless grace. So when we come to him, we are assured we shall find grace in his sight, not because we are so lovable. That played into this. Here with Ahasuerus, Esther's appearance delighted the king. He noticed her rank, Queen Esther. God doesn't receive us because we're so good, or because we're so beautiful, or because we're so delightful, or because we have some rank or station that gets us somewhere with him. No, it's because his eyes are full of grace towards us in Jesus Christ. Not of works of righteousness that we have done, but of his own Free grace. We're his children. We have equal standing before him. Children and heirs. One is not privileged above the other. He does not give, he does not give ear to one and ignore another. He doesn't have favorites. He is not a respecter of persons. But all God's people, whoever you are, whatever your station, whatever your rank, free access to the inner court of God. Let us, therefore, come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
And the reason we can say all of that is Jesus Christ. That's how this can be. Jesus Christ. He is the way unto the Father. He is our access unto God. He is the door into God's inner court. And we may even say this, that He is the presence of God, in so much as Jesus is our Emmanuel, God with us. And so we read in Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 22, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The blood of Christ is our covering. It sprinkles our consciences and takes away our guilt because there was a commandment that would have barred us from God's presence. And that was the curse of God's law. Our sin and our rebellion did bar us from God's presence. You think of the cherubim with their flaming swords at the entrance of the Garden of Eden, barring Adam and Eve from entering the inner court of God on account of their sin. Picture the cherubim embroidered upon the temple veil that blocked entrance into the most holy place. The sinner may not approach the Holy One cross of Christ tore that veil in half, set apart the flaming swords, and the crucified and risen Christ has himself become the new and living way behind the veil into the inner court of God. And by the grace of God and the operation of his spirit, we are united to this Christ. And in him, we have access to the Father. That curse of the law and its wages of death, He bore away. He shed His blood upon the cross and fully satisfied for all of our sins. It's that cross that makes the throne of the King of the universe a throne of grace. It's the cross which is the reason that the scepter of Almighty God is eternally outstretched to us in mercy. And Christ not only takes away that penalty of the law, but He sends us into God's presence, not in the filthy rags of our own indwelling sin, but in the royal robes of His own righteousness, so that we appear before God, clad in Christ's own perfection, and we are pleasing in God's eyes, and we obtain grace for Jesus' sake. Christ is the absolute certainty behind the shall. We shall find mercy. Go boldly. You can go boldly anytime to the throne of grace. And shall find mercy. Apply it specifically. Are you in a time of great need? We made these applications this morning, but we can make them again in connection with this text. Are you in a time of great need, great distress, perhaps crushingly so, so that you don't know what the path forward is, like Esther and Mordecai here, 
a, a time of great distress. Christ, the throne of grace, go to Him and find, you will find, mercy in time of need, burdened, afflicted, grieving saint, with a mountain of trials, with valleys, the Grand Canyon deep, go to Christ. At His throne of grace, there is mercy. Struggling, believing sinner, whose sins rise against you daily, And you ask, can there really be mercy for me, for me? Remember the publican, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And look to the cross where Christ took the hell your sins deserve. And then go to the throne of grace. You shall find mercy. Weary, burdened, disillusioned church member who wants to give up and give in and turn away. Throw in the towel. No. Go to Christ, your all-sufficient Savior, to His throne of grace. You shall find mercy. There is a sanctuary in this world that nothing can touch. It's the sanctuary of safety, rest, and peace that's under the shadow of the cross, that's at the foot of the throne of grace, where God His Son, Jesus Christ, extend that scepter of grace. Go there. Resort there. Hide there. Be refreshed there. But now back to the history. Esther is standing before Ahasuerus. What wilt thou, Queen Esther? What is thy request? And it shall be given thee even to the half of the kingdom. Esther must answer. And it's an opportunity that could hardly be hoped for. Ahasuerus has received her not only, but here expresses himself willing to hear whatever is on her mind and even grant it. What an opportunity. And yet, Esther's answer is to make an unexpected request that may take the reader by surprise. We'd expect Esther to immediately make her appeal to divulge to the king what Haman has plotted and how the wiping out of the Jews would not only bring great harm to the Persian Empire, but it would mean the destruction of herself and her own people for she herself is a Jew. You'd expect her to divulge all of this and make a plea for her people, but she doesn't. She doesn't. Instead, she invites Ahasuerus and Haman, those two alone, invites them to come to a special banquet. Verse 4, If it seem good unto the king, let the king and Haman come this day unto the banquet that I have prepared for them. What's she doing? Ahasuerus is a fickle man. You have him in a good mood. Ask now. He's very liable to swing over to the other extreme and the opportunity might be lost forever. What's she doing? She's not losing her nerve. But as we'll see, there's a definite strategy here. Esther is coming into her own. And here we want to see the hand of God again. Esther is transforming as a character She started this book as 
a very compliant young Jewish girl who went along with whatever was done to her, resigned herself to evil and even played along with it and tried to make the best of it. Things happened to her. But now we see Esther active, using her mind, taking initiative. The weight of her people rests upon her shoulders. And she doesn't collapse into a pool of self-pity. Easily that could happen. Easily we can do that when much is required of us because we're so weak. We can't stand but for a moment of our own and when the trials pile up, when the responsibilities pile up, when God raises us up for such a time as this, our human reaction can easily be melt into a pool of self-pity and doubt and despair or anger or rebellion against God. But that's not what happens here, is it? She goes forward. There's a a steely determination here. Again, we don't know for sure Esther's spiritual condition. If she is not a believer, what we see here is God working even in the heart of an unbelieving man or unbelieving woman to cause her to do what he wants. She's his instrument. That may be the case. But if... Esther is a weak believer. What we may see here is God using the trials in her life to rekindle faith that had been sputtering, that had become nothing but a smoking flax. And by the grace of God, she takes action. That may be. We leave it to God, which of those it may be. He only knows. The point for us is we see God at work here. And it's marvelous in our eyes how God is now working through Esther. He has brought her to greater maturity and strength to act precisely when he needs her to act. Need is the wrong word when he ordained her to act. This magnifies God. Wonderful in his works and ways. So Esther has a strategy. The strategy is a banquet. That makes sense, doesn't it? What better way to soften a Hasuerus up more than to wine and dine him? We know Ahasuerus likes nothing better than eating and drinking. It's a striking fact, isn't it? Every one of the chapters up to this point where Ahasuerus has appeared personally, there's been a feast. That's where the book started. With Ahasuerus' grand feast, his grandiose display of his wealth and power, 180 days of feasting. And then after the deposition of Vashti, Ahasuerus chooses Esther to be his queen, and what do they do? They have another feast. And then in chapter 3, Haman hatches his evil plot. And how does the chapter end very ominously with Ahasuerus sitting down with his black-hearted prince to drink? Ahasuerus likes nothing better. Esther knows that. A feast. 
And verse 4 indicates that this banquet has already been prepared. I have prepared. It's not I will, I have. Apparently, those three days that Esther was fasting with her maidservants, she had also been thinking about what she would do and had already made preparations for this feast. There's a plan. There's a strategy here. And now she says, come today. A brilliant move. She doesn't give Ahasuerus time to think or Haman time to ask questions. What's going on here? Come today. And she turns her unbidden intrusion into Ahasuerus' presence into a surprise honor for Ahasuerus. And Ahasuerus loves being honored. A banquet thrown for me and my right-hand man? How can he say no to that? And so he gives the order, cause Haman to make haste that he may do as Esther hath said. Ahasuerus is all in. But notice, the way the text is written here already gives a subtle indicator, and it's ominous for Haman. Who's running things here? Cause Haman to make haste that he may do as Esther hath said. The tables are turning. And so verse 5 continues, The king and Haman came to the banquet that Esther had prepared. How quickly everything moved. Ahasuerus dropped everything and demanded Haman drop everything. It's time to eat and drink. And so that very day they came. Where? Perhaps it took place in Esther's own personal quarters. There would be an advantage to that, but more likely than not, This banquet took place in one of the the palace's small private banqueting chambers. Maybe Esther's own handmaids were the servants that served the meal. After all, they would have been involved in the preparation of it. Verse 6 tells us that at the banquet of wine, the king broaches the subject of her request. The banquet of wine refers to the course after dinner. In a Persian feast, they'd have their dinner, even multiple courses of dinner. But then after dinner, there was the banquet of wine. And it was a course dedicated to drinking fine wine. You might consider it almost like dessert. It's then, when the king is in quite jolly spirits, and he says to Esther, What's your request? What's your request? And he reiterates what he had said earlier that day. I'm ready to grant it, even to the half of the kingdom. Now in verses 7 and 8, Esther's response is very interesting. And we want to look at it because something is is lost here a little bit in translation. So let's look at at verses 7 and 8 a moment and read them carefully. Then answered Esther and said, My petition and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my petition and to perform my request, let the king and Haman come to the banquet that I shall prepare for them, and I will do tomorrow as the king hath said. Now the first interesting thing is, between verses 7 and 8, There's kind of a disconnect. You can sense it a little bit. Now, the way it's translated, it seems to imply that verse 8 is Esther's request. But really, the idea is this. 
Esther breaks off one thought, that's verse 7, and starts a new thought in verse 8. She says in verse 7, my petition and my request is, and then there's a pause as if she's thinking, and then decides not to reveal what her real request is, and instead to say what we have in verse 8. She hesitates a moment. Whether that's intentional, maybe. It piques the king's interest. What's going on here? He wants to know what this request is. But very likely it's strategic. Bring the king and Haman to another banquet. Soften them up yet more. The king up more. And now there's this very interesting thing in verse 8. Notice how masterfully Esther uses language to virtually obligate the king to grant her request. She says in verse 8, If I have found favor in thy sight, if it please the king to grant my petition and to perform my request, let the king and Haman come to the banquet that I shall prepare for them. The idea is, if you come tomorrow, that means you're pleased to grant my request. Very shrewdly, she is maneuvering Ahasuerus into a position where he really won't have any choice but to grant her request whatever it is, or he will lose face. Masterful. We know Ahasuerus doesn't like losing face. Not at all. And there's irony here, isn't there? Ahasuerus, the man who's in control, who has all power, who issued an empire-wide edict, let husbands rule in their homes. And Esther has him on a hook like a fish. The king is happy with this. And so he agrees. There will be another banquet Tomorrow. But that's a text to come. Let's see a couple more things about Esther's strategy before we move on to Haman. Esther had good reasons to do what she did, to even delay things when it seemed like there was an opportunity to divulge her request right away. And when we think about it, we can understand why. The danger had not passed when Ahasuerus accepted her into his presence. In fact, the making of her request, you could argue, is the more dangerous of the tasks before her. It meant opposing the king's favorite, his right-hand man, Esther had reason to doubt that Ahasuerus would prefer her over him. And so she is playing this very shrewdly, moving Ahasuerus into a position where he will have to give what she asks or lose face. And at the same time, putting Haman in a position where he is compromised and doesn't have time to react to launch a counterattack. You can imagine if 
Esther had just made her request and the king wanted to think about it. Or he consulted Haman. Haman could start pulling his levers with the Hajwirs and very quickly everything could have fallen apart. These banquets are carefully crafted to put both the king and Haman in a position where they have almost no choice but to give in to Esther's request, at least in the case of the king. And that will be bad news for Haman. But there's higher reasons for all of this. Esther's shrewd strategy, her cleverness, her intelligence that shines through in chapter 5, behind it all again is God. God is working here. God is using her subtlety, her shrewdness, her strategy to delay things a little bit. Because it is not God's will For Haman to fall this day, it is God's will for Haman to fall a day later. Esther 6 has to take place, and that's next time. There must be the king's sleepless night. There must be the revelation of Mordecai's unrewarded deed of service to the throne. There must be the public shaming of Haman as he is forced to publicly honor Mordecai. There are all these things that God has planned and that God will unfold according to his counsel. And so he guides these events according to his will and he uses Esther's shrewdness, Esther's strategy for his purposes. Again, we see it's not Esther, it's not Haman, it's not Ahasuerus, it's not any human power or any demonic power that is in control or guiding the strands of history. It's the unseen King Jehovah. His hand. Truly, truly, not a hair can fall from our heads without the will our Heavenly Father. Well, this scene in Esther 5 concludes by going back to Haman. And here, the the book creates a little more suspense. It's going to make us wait to find out the outcome of Esther's banquets. Now, the focus shifts to Haman. And it's ironic, isn't it, as we read about him starting in verse 9, how as he goes from Esther's banquet that day, he is all puffed up. Esther's carefully crafted banquet that is actually working his demise, he sees as a tremendous honor to his person and further confirmation that he is the greatest man in Persia. And so he goes home puffed up. Verse 9 says, Haman went forth that day joyful and with a glad heart in high spirits. And the text here isn't describing an all-around happiness or a jolly mood. That Haman is happy means Haman is full of himself. That's what makes Haman happy. Haman is an idolater. And the temple that he worships in is the temple of self. And the worship that he craves and desires to fill up his idol-sized ego is the praise and the adoration and the bowing and the respect of every human being in Persia. He's happy right now, thinks, in high spirits, 
because he feels like he's on the top of the world. He keeps on rising. Look at the position the king has raised me to. And now even Esther the queen invites me, just me, to go with the king to this special banquet. Now there's another one tomorrow. But that elation is very short-lived. His self-satisfied happiness is quickly spoiled as verse 9 continues. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he stood not up nor moved for him, he was full of indignation against Mordecai. Here we see the pettiness and the foolishness of self-idolatry. How quickly the proud self-worshipper can be puffed up and then popped with the pinprick of one person who doesn't fawn over him. And that's Mordecai. We've already seen that Mordecai's in the wrong. He's disobeying God's command to honor civil authorities. And he's still doing that. But it's quite striking to see Haman's response. Mordecai's back in the king's gate. Apparently he's laid aside his sackcloth. Something's being done. Esther is going to the king. So he wants to be in the king's gate. He's back at his post. And when Haman comes... Mordecai snubs him again. Mordecai doesn't even acknowledge his existence. He doesn't even move. And that rage, that hatred, that fury boils up inside of Haman again. And we have that Hebrew play on words once again. Haman is filled with chema. Wrath. And he barely restrains himself. Not godly self-control but he consoles himself with the thought of his coming grand vengeance against Mordecai and his whole people. So barely containing himself, he gets back home, but his tender ego has been wounded again, puffed up Haman, has been deflated a bit, and so what does the self-worshipper do? He has to get a bunch of people around him to tell him how great he is. And get a bunch of people around him who will listen to him tell them how great he is. And so he calls his wife Zeresh and all of his friends and he boasts to them about his wealth, about the number of his children, about all of his promotions. And it's almost comical, isn't it? These people know. Your wife knows how many kids you have. Your friends know how wealthy you are and how much you've been promoted. You can imagine them, because they have to, just sitting there and nodding their heads as Haman spills a litany of his greatness for them. It's comical. But it's sad. That's our human nature. That's where pride brings us. That's where self-worship brings us. And there's an application for us. Let us beware of that. This is what the self-serving and self-seeking man becomes. Selfishness can start small, but when it's fed and when we live for self and when self becomes our God, we can easily become like Haman and everybody else sees it except us. Danger. And thus, the calling of the gospel to that chiefest of Christian graces, humility, humility. Humility is a guard against this kind of comically sad, puffing up. That leads to so much destruction. 
Well, Haman continues his boasting. He boasts about not only his riches and his promotions, but the fact that Queen Esther let no man come in with the king unto the banquet that she had prepared but myself, and tomorrow I I am invited unto her also with the king. He considers himself highly honored by Esther's special attention. Little does he know. But then verse 13 comes, and you see, despite Haman's desperate efforts to reinflate his deflating ego, he can't because Mordecai's pinprick is still there. Verse 13, Yet all this availeth me nothing so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting in the king's gate. What he means is, none of this matters. None of this profits me anything. I can't enjoy any of my riches, my family, all that I have, my promotions. It means nothing because Mordecai is there. My hated enemy will not honor me. Here again we see the the sad spectacle of pride. This man will not be satisfied until he is worshipped by all. And he is blind to absolutely everything except the one man who will not do him the honor that he thinks he deserves. When we wander long and far down that path of living for self, we can be like that too, can't we? It's dangerous. We become blind to everything that we have and fixate on this thing I can't live with. I can't accept. And it brings much ruin and trouble and hardship. Or we can become disillusioned such that we lose perspective. We see all of these problems and we forget all that God has given us, all of the good. We see only the bad and so fixate on the bad that we say, None of this avails anything so long as you fill in the blank. And though we may not intend it, what we are in fact doing is negating the goodness of God and denying the reality of all of His benefits and all of the reasons that we have to be thankful. Haman is comical. Haman is sad. We shake our heads at him. But if we think Carefully, it's frightening how easy it is to be just like him. And thus, he's here in the scriptures as a warning to us to point out the the, the danger of self-worship, the danger of pride, the danger of fixating on the bad to the exclusion of the good or fixating on this thing that I must have And until I have it, I will not be happy. I will not acknowledge God's goodness. No, no, no. The humble Christian sees things the other way. As much bad and trouble as there is, I have God. I have Christ. I have all. I'm rich in Him. And all of this bad, it cannot compare to what I have in Christ. It cannot swallow up or sweep away what I have in Christ. 
It's not none of this avails because of that. It's God avails. Christ avails. And overcomes all else. Weak of ourselves. By the grace of God. He works that in us. By His Spirit. Well back to Haman. Haman is pouting. Zeresh and his friends want to help, and they're probably irritated that they keep having to be subjected to this kind of behavior. And so Zeresh and his friends, in verse 14, provide a solution to Haman, one that fits very much Haman's temperament. Build gallows. Think about this, Haman. You can build gallows. Build them as big as your ego. So 50 cubits, 75 feet high, so all of Shushan can see them. And then tomorrow, go to the king and get his royal sanction for the execution of Mordecai. Of course, he's going to give it to you. Without question, he granted your request for the extermination of an entire people in his empire. He's not going to care. He'll let you kill Mordecai. This will solve your problem. This will plug the pinprick. Go get permission to execute Mordecai. Hang him up 75 feet in the air so that everyone in the city can see the public disgrace of your enemy, then you'll feel better. And then you can go happily to Queen Esther's banquet. And there you see the folly of sin and pride again, trying to patch itself up, trying to reinflate itself up. And yet sin leads to ruin. And that's what we're going to see. Haman's pleased with this. He immediately goes and gets these gallows built. The gallows which will be the instrument of his own demise. As God in his justice, the unseen king, causes the evil by evil to be slain. And that's where chapter 5 ends. Leaving us in suspense. What's going to happen? Has Esther's delay opened the door for the unexpected execution of Mordecai? Will Haman be successful? Chapter 6 will lead us into the next act of the unseen king as he thwarts the counsels of the wicked. No weapon formed against his people shall prosper. That we see already now, and that we shall see as the history continues. Amen. Our faithful God and Father, we thank Thee for this passage of the book of Esther, and we pray that Thou wilt apply its truths to our heart, that we may trust Thee, the King who rules, that we may ever resort to Thee, the King who receives and who shall have mercy Help us, Father, when we are inflated with pride, we easily can walk like Haman. But Thou art merciful to us, and Thou dost keep us from going down that path to destruction. Thou dost turn us back by Thy Word and Spirit. Use even Thy Word to do that when we wander in sin. Now bless Thy Word to our hearts and dismiss us with Thy peace into a new week that is before us. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.